The Easter season recounts the preparation of Jesus as the Passover lamb and moves from the sacrifice on the cross to the celebration of a risen Savior. What did the cross and resurrection achieve? In a word, life. Christ's saving work on our behalf is the good news of eternal life. And this good news calls each of us to faith and repentance. Christianity rests on the certainty of Jesus' resurrection. Just as Jesus said, because I live, you also will live. This time of the year is very important for us as believers. And I really enjoy Palm Sunday, but I had a question about that in my own study this past uh, few weeks, like where did that tradition come from? We know that Jesus rode into Jerusalem, right? But where did the tradition come to celebrating that? And I was able to trace it back as far as the late third century or maybe the early fourth century when the church there in Jerusalem celebrated a Palm Sunday, celebrating his triumphal entry. And so I thought about that. Even if it goes back only that far, that's still a long ways, and there's been hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of the Christian church celebrating Palm Sunday, right? And it's probably looked different in many different churches, and so we gather together today to celebrate Palm Sunday. But one thing that probably was consistent through all the centuries was that Palm Sunday was the Sunday that kicked off Passion Week. And more specific, it focused on one particular event. It was Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And make no doubt about it, his entry into Jerusalem upon a donkey was his declaration of his kingship. And Matthew wants to make sure we don't miss that in our passage today. Now, this particular event is recorded in all four of the Gospels. All four of the Gospels. In fact, all four of the Gospels record very specifically that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, surrounded and greeted by an enthusiastic crowd. But it's interesting to note also that almost exactly one-third of all the chapters that make up the four Gospels deals with that last week in the earthly ministry of Jesus from Palm Sunday to the resurrection. The Gospel of John, John takes up two-thirds of his entire gospel dealing with that one week. So there's some significance going on here. And there's a reason why for, for centuries the church and believers in Christ have been celebrating Palm Sunday and then looking forward to Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday next week. So let's give a little more context for the passage we're looking at. I mentioned it's, it, uh, it's in Matthew chapter 21. And so what's been going on prior to what we are about to read? Well, we know Jesus has been making his way down from Galilee to Jerusalem, but he has stopped off for a while there in that region around Bethany, just really outside of Jerusalem, kind of a suburb. And for several days, instead of being public in his teaching and preaching, he has focused on his disciples. He's pouring into them prior to entering into Jerusalem, most likely staying there in Bethany. And while he's doing that, the religious leaders in Jerusalem are continuing to build more and more of their opposition to Jesus, more and more of their case. In fact, they are on the lookout that if Jesus enters into Jerusalem during Passover, we need to have him arrested. 
And so here you have the religious leaders that their opposition has kind of hit a boiling point. Jesus about ready to come into Jerusalem. And oh, by the way, throw the Passover celebration is getting ready to be underway. And so there's tens and thousands, ten thousands and thousands and thousands of people, probably maybe several hundreds of thousands of people that have descended to Jerusalem. And so it's a perfect scenario for something incredible to happen. And that's where we pick up our passage this morning. I've broken it into three sections, the plan, the proof, and the praise. The plan, the proof, and the praise. And we'll break it into those sections. I'll read the text, and then we'll come back and take uh, a look at that text and some observations from that. We begin in verse one. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Let's skip down to verse six. We're gonna come back and look at four and five in just a minute under the next point. Verse six says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. So we see the plan. Jesus initiating this plan. Jesus involves from the very beginning. So what's going on? Well, Jesus, as I said, had been in the area of Bethany, and now he's about ready to make his final trip into Jerusalem. And so as they're getting ready to move, and maybe as they're walking along, as they get a little closer to the Mount of Olives, Jesus stops, and he gives instructions to two disciples. We don't know which two these are. But he gives instruction to the two disciples and basically just tells them to go into this village that's right in front of them and to take this donkey and this donkey and the donkey's foal, the colt, the colt, and bring them to me. And he gives them very specific instructions. I hope you notice that. He, he tells them exactly where to go, what to look for, and what to say, what to do, and what to say if you're questioned. He does all of these things. And as we see how specific his instructions are, it's texts like this that, and, and so many other that remind us that Jesus was always in control of every single detail of his life and ultimately of his death. That Jesus was always in control. And it's a great reminder for us today that not only was Jesus in control, but God is sovereign. God is always in control. And sometimes, let's just be honest, our lives feel like they're out of control. There's stuff happening in our lives. There's difficult circumstances we deal with. And things just feel like they're out of control. Maybe for you right now, that's not. Maybe for right now, it feels good. But whatever, we have those times and we sometimes doubt or sometimes forget. Wait a minute. Just like Jesus was in control of all these details, God is in control of all the details in your life. Nothing slips by him. Nothing, absolutely nothing. He is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present. He is sovereign. And we can trust that with our very lives. Notice what else uh, in this first section in verse three, this, what I think is a very interesting statement that Jesus makes when he tells them in this instructions, he says, if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them. The Lord needs them. Now, does the Lord need anything? No, not a trick question. Absolutely not. It's as if, does the Lord need a, need a donkey to get him from point A to point B all of a sudden? Think about it. He's been walking miles and miles and miles for three years all over Israel. 
All of a sudden, he needs an animal to help him get into Jerusalem because his legs are worn out. No, absolutely not. He could have easily walked. So the Lord doesn't need the donkey. Does the Lord need us to do anything? Here's the reason why he asked them and said the Lord has need of them. Not because his legs were tired, not because he needed those disciples to do something. And we'll come back and talk about their obedience in just a minute. He needed that cult to ride on into Jerusalem to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy. And I think most of us in this room recognize that, that that was, had been prophesied about that. We're going to look at the specific prophecy that talked about this in just a minute. So he needed that cult to do that, but he also needed that cult to help describe and let people see who he truly was and what his mission was all about. And so we're going to look at both of that, the, the fulfillment of the prophecy and the statement that Jesus is making by riding on a donkey in just a minute. So no, he didn't need anybody's stuff per se. However, it's kind of cool that he worked through the disciples in this moment, isn't it? That he worked through them. He doesn't need our, our stuff. He doesn't need our obedience. But when he commands, when he asks us to do things and we respond, God is able to use us for his purposes, for his glory. And that's what we see happening in these disciples' lives. Look at verse six and look at how they responded. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. I don't know about you, but somebody tells me to do what Jesus just told those two disciples to do. I got a few questions, right? I mean, wait a minute. You want me to go into this village, and as soon as I get in there, I'm going to see a donkey, and the donkey's uh, full, and you want me to just take them? Just, just take them. Like, steal them. <laughs> Is anybody going to come after us? Is that, have you made a prearrangement with these people already, Jesus? You know, what's the, you know, there, I've got, I've got questions and concerns here. This is, this doesn't make sense perhaps, but I love what they said. Look what it said in verse six. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. Such a simple statement, but yet such a profound example of obedience to our Lord and Savior. And I thought about my own life and how clear the scriptures are so many times on what the expectations are for me as a follower of Christ, how clear the commands are in God's word, and yet I still struggle to obey. I have questions. I have doubts. I rationalize in a way, oh, that must be for some other Christians. That must not be for me. And yet here this statement, they just, they just did as Jesus commanded them to do. Would it be that we would have that kind of obedience? I, I put on your outline, God still calls for our obedience. That hasn't changed. God wants, to, God wants to work in and through you. God wants to work in and through me, but it starts with our obedience to him and to his word. That's where it starts with that. So why did Jesus choose to enter Jerusalem on a donkey? Well, we just mentioned it was basically to fulfill a prophecy, which leads to number two, the proof. The proof. This is really the Old Testament explanation of what he's doing. Let's look at verses four through five now. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. I love that Matthew uses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Old Testament text, the prophecy to help us to see exactly what's happening here, to help us better understand. Remember, Matthew really wanted to make sure that we understood that Jesus, by doing this, was declaring his kingship. 
And the very, very first thing that we read out of Zechariah 9, 9 is, behold, your king is coming to you. Now, the context for Zechariah's prophecy was in the context of he was speaking about Israel's future and specifically about Israel's future king, God. So Matthew wants us to get that Jesus riding in on the donkey, he's declaring that he is the king. A couple of observations from this particular two verses. First of all, it's a statement that Jesus is making. It's, he's making a statement. He has planned this, and now Jesus is making a statement. And what is that statement? He's claiming royalty, but not the kind of king the people expected. He's claiming royalty, but it's not the kind of king, not the kind of royalty that they expected. You see, he's not riding in on a beautiful war steed, dressed in battle array, with surrounded by a battalion of ironclad chariots with a thousand soldiers in front and a thousand soldiers behind. No, he's not riding in like that. No, he's riding in humble, gentle, on a donkey. The, co the complete opposite of what Israel was expecting. So riding in on that donkey, while it was so unexpected, it was very symbolic in what he was doing. Remember, Jesus is in control of every detail surrounding his life. And so Jesus riding in on this donkey symbolized that he wasn't coming to make war. He was coming in peace. His reign was to be a peaceful and gentle one, polar opposite of what the Israelites were expecting. The second statement, or the second uh, observation is Jesus' humility. Jesus' humility. He has claimed to be a king, yes, but he's not coming to set up a, a, a physical reign there where he would you know, kick out the Romans. No, he was a king that had come to die. A king coming to die. There's something amazing about this picture. Something amazing about the king of kings and lord of lords riding in to Jerusalem on a lowly donkey. And the humility of Jesus in this moment just shines through this scene, doesn't it? To think he truly is the king of kings and lord of lords, and he's on a donkey. What a contrast. But yet it demonstrates his humility in this moment. Could he have had the most impressive uh, array of what he came into Jerusalem on? Absolutely. He could have blown everybody's mind, but no, he came in on a lowly donkey. What's also pretty cool about this is the fact that coming in on that donkey was, as we mentioned earlier, fulfilling what Zechariah had prophesied about. And isn't that cool when you read something in the Old Testament and you see it happen and fulfilled in the New Testament? In fact, there are over 300 Old Testament prophecies referring to Jesus and his death in the Old Testament that we see come to fruition that are fulfilled in the New Testament. And it's things like that that I, I, as I read God's word, I, I just need to be reminded over and over that this book is full of God's promises and that I can trust God's promises, that I can trust God's word. But it starts with me reading God's word. A lot of times we don't know the promises. I'll be honest, I don't know all 300 prophecies in the Old Testament that were fulfilled uh, by Christ's death or life and death. But I want to learn. I want to grow because as I grow, I have a better understanding of who God is and who Jesus is. But we can trust God's word. We can trust the promises of God. And maybe you're going through a tough time and you need to hear some of God's promises. I encourage you, be in the word of God. Stay in the word of God. And by the way, before we move to the next point, will Jesus ever come with the purpose of doing battle? Yes, he will. Revelation 19 makes it very clear. He will come on a white horse and he will come to 
judge and make war. It's very specific. But that's for then. This is now. He comes peaceably. This is the season of salvation. Some 2,000 years so far. But will this season of salvation last forever? No. Absolutely. He will come to rule and reign and judge to make war. Number three, the praise. The praise. Let's pick up now down in verse eight. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So we're going to talk about the praise now because we see several responses and reactions. But let's, let's get back to our narrative and paint the picture here of what's happening. Once the disciples have situated Jesus on the donkey, they now begin to make their way toward Jerusalem, which means they were going to head down a pretty steep descent, the Mount of Olives, down into the Kidron Valley, and then up into the walls of the eastern walls into Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. And so that's where they are, and that's what's happening. And as they're going down, as they've left, we, we begin to sense that there is a huge crowd that is being drawn to where Jesus is. A couple of places where that crowd is coming from. Many pilgrims, as I mentioned earlier, thousands upon thousands that were heading to Jerusalem for Passover would have been coming from the Galilean region. And so many of them, as they got closer to Jerusalem, kind of all ended up in that same area. But I pretty sure there were a lot of them that were like, they heard that Jesus was nearby and they wanted to be close. And so they were heading to be where Jesus, they had heard about the miracles. Maybe they had seen some of the miracles earlier. They had heard about him raising Lazarus from the dead. And so they wanted to be close and see what was going. They didn't want to miss out. And then there's another group of people that were in Jerusalem that heard this guy named Jesus is approaching and everybody's been talking about him. He's the buzz. He's trending big time here in Jerusalem. Let's head out and see what's going on. Let's meet him on the way down to Jerusalem. And so as this scene unfolds, I can only imagine, and I don't think my mind does it justice, but to try to imagine all of these people gathering around him to see him pass by. And then Matthew gives us how they some of them responded. In fact, most of them, it says in verse eight, that most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Now, has this thought ever crossed your mind? We call it Palm Sunday, but maybe we should have called it Cloak Sunday, right? No, cloak, it said most of them threw their cloaks down. Okay, maybe not. Uh, we'll keep calling it Palm Sunday. But what were they doing when they were throwing their cloaks down and throwing the branches down? It was a, it was a gesture of honor, of reverence. Even a, a gesture for some, it would have been of, of submission, to this person that was going to trample afoot their property. And so we see that response, but then we see a, another response from another group of people here in this passage. Look at verse nine. It says, and the crowds that went before him and that, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting. Now stop right there. So far we hear it sounds like people are standing by and they're watching Jesus and his disciples and maybe some other people that were with him and they're throwing stuff in front of him. It's kind of like they're watching the parade go by. But here, something else is happening. There's a group of people that have, they weren't satisfied just to throw their cloak down or their branches down. No, they either jumped in front of the procession or behind the procession. They wanted to be a part of the parade. 
And so now there's a group of people jumping in before Jesus and a group of people behind. So you got the picture. Still, lots of people converging in this moment. And now there's a group that are watching as they pass through, like the parade watchers, but now there's people joining in the parade. And that's what Matthew says, what they're doing, how they're responding. He said it was that group that were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so again, to try to help us get the picture of what was happening, I want you to join me in a little exercise here. You don't mind, do you? It's kind of a good point to make sure you're still awake. All right. We're going to put these three, the three phrases we just said up on the screen. Hosanna to the son of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and Hosanna in the highest. And I want you to pick one of those phrases. Maybe you have a favorite. Maybe you just have to randomly pick one. In just a minute, I'm going to count down one, two, three, and I want you to shout your phrase three times, okay? Pretty simple, right? You got it? One, two, three. I think uh, the Hosanna and the highest one. Uh, Maybe you picked that one because it was the shortest one. I don't know. Okay, so it's hard to understand what everybody's saying. That might have been what was happening, but here's another theory I have. What if those two groups we just did, Matthew described the group in the front and the group in the back, what if they are doing more of an antiphonal thing where they're going back and forth with these shouts of praise? And by the way, we're going to get to where the origin of these words came from that they're shouting because that's very important. But I'm trying to kind of paint the picture for us. So here's what I want to do. With these words still on the screen, we're going to divide us in two groups. Group one, group two. Group one, you're going to start. Hosanna to the Son of God. Now you're going to shout that. Group two, you're going to shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then group one, you're going to respond, Hosanna in the highest. Think you can do that? And let's even try to do it twice. So you'll actually have to start right back again. Blessed is he, Hosanna in the highest. All right, so ready? Let's go. Hosanna to the Son of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Hosanna to the Son of God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Yeah, give yourselves a hand. That's pretty good. All right. Okay, so I don't know. That could have been, but they were shouting these words, and there was a lot of significance to these words. In fact, they're taken from Psalm 118. And Psalm 118 was part of the Egyptian Hallel Psalms uh, that made up from Psalm 113 to Psalm 118. Six Psalms, and they were written specifically as praise songs to be used at the Passover or other Jewish festivals. And their theme was one of deliverance. Makes sense, right? Let's write praise songs about God delivering us from Egyptian captivity and bondage as we celebrate Passover. And so maybe, in fact, This psalm, that Psalm 118, could have been one that was sung by Jesus and his disciples in the upper room that night. And it also would have been potentially a song that families, as they traveled to Jerusalem, would have been rehearsing with their their children to make sure they, they knew these psalms because they were going to be part of the Passover that was coming in just a few days. And so... Those are the words that are said in this moment directly from Psalm 118. So let's, let's take a look at Psalm 118, verse 25 through 26. It says this, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, the bottom verse, 26, and that's the first part of verse 26, 
it's pretty clear. It's almost word for, the English translation is almost word for word from Psalm 118, verse 26 to Matthew 21, verse nine here. It's, 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 it's okay, I get that. It, Luke makes a slight modification and he says, blessed is the king that comes in the name of the Lord. And probably because not only were these, these psalms, uh, psalms of deliverance, but they also had a strong messianic undertone to them. And so perhaps some of the disciples already recognized, wait a minute, we're, we're talking about the coming Messiah. We're just gonna go ahead and throw in the word king. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But the next part, or actually the first part, 25, where it says, save us, we pray, O Lord. Well, how does that connect with Hosanna to the Son of God? Well, that phrase, or that word, Hosanna, is the Hebrew word for save us now. And so when you look at the text, when it says, save us, O Lord, you see the connection of Hosanna. And when you bring in Son of David, or Son of God, we now have one of the more common messianic references that's used. And so they're, they're crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David and Hosanna in the highest. And it meant, save us. We're crying out for salvation. But here's the problem. They were crying out for the salvation, not of their souls, but of the occupation of Rome over them. And so here's, here's, the, here's the, what I think is one of the more important points in this, and observations from this passage, that they had the right words, but the wrong heart. They had the right words, but they had the wrong understanding. They had the wrong heart. You see, their words were accurate. They were, they, were, they were using prophetic words. They were using the accurate words to describe the coming Messiah, his messianic work, his messianic character. But they didn't have a clue on actually what he was going to do. And so for most of them, and I shouldn't say all, for most of them, they had the right words, but the wrong heart. Remember the setting, and, I, and you kind of can see why this would happen, because it was days before Passover, and Passover was celebrating the deliverance of the Israelites from Egyptian bondage and captivity, right? And so now, there's word of this man named Jesus that they're calling a prophet that is more than a prophet, because he's, he's, he's healing people, he's even raised somebody from the dead, he must be even more than a prophet. So they begin to have messianic hopes that not only can he do that, but that he can also deliver them from their oppression under Rome. But they had it all wrong. They had it all wrong. And so that's how you get from a group of people that are shouting, Hosanna in the highest, save us, O Lord, to just literally a few days later, crucify him, crucify him. Right words, but their hearts were wrong. So the application for us today, do my words of praise reflect my heart? Do my words. What I say reflect truly my heart. And think about it. For the last 45 minutes before I started, 30 minutes before I started to, to, to teach, you were singing. You were praising God. You were acknowledging things about him. You were, you were even saying statements of submission to him. Lord, have your way with me. Your way with us. Did you mean that? Was that the true reflection of your heart? Or was it just something, okay, yeah, I come to church and I sing the words on the screen and then I, I go and pretty much live however I want. Or at least not be too concerned that I'm saying one thing and living another. You see, not much different than this crowd. that They were yelling and they were saying the exact accurate thing about Jesus. But yet in their hearts, 
They, they were not looking for someone to save their soul. They were looking for someone to save their situation. You see, Jesus came not to conquer Rome, but to conquer sin and to conquer death. And while their words were appropriate, they had no idea of the significance of what they were saying or doing. See, the truth is, those in that crowd, at least most of them, wanted a Messiah on their own terms. They wanted a Messiah on their own terms. They wanted a Messiah that would meet their needs. And I thought about that. I thought about that's not much different than, than many today, is it? In fact, I put on the outline, many then and still today want a Jesus on their terms. They want a Messiah. They want a Jesus that'll meet their needs. They want somebody to take care of their problems, to heal their sickness, to deal with their addictions, to help them with their family and their relationships and their job. They want somebody that, that will do all of those things for them, that will make them happy, that will bring financial success in their lives. But you see, here's the truth. Jesus on your own terms is no Jesus at all. Jesus on your own terms is no Jesus at all. And so I think that's why we get to this, this question that we see there in verse, verse 10. As the whole city is stirred up, the question is, who is this? Who is this? I mean, they, they, they were excited. They knew something was, something was going on that was different, something that was unique in the moment. And so they had a question, who is this? But I think that question, Matthew gives us that question for several reasons. It does truly reveal their heart. They didn't know who Jesus truly was. But it's also a great question for us today because how would you respond to that? And here's the problem. The Israelites in this moment thought their greatest problem was Rome. They thought their greatest issue was the Roman occupation of their country. That was their greatest problem. And it's not much different today in how we think about what our greatest problem is. We often think our greatest problem is our finances, the problem at work, the children, the money, the list goes on. And we think that's our greatest need. But that's not our greatest need. And Rome was not the greatest need for Israel. You know what our greatest need is? Our greatest need is that we are sinners. And because of our sin, we deserve God's wrath, God's judgment, and God's eternal punishment, right? In fact, the only thing we truly deserve is hell. That's it. But the beautiful thing about the gospel and the beautiful thing about what Jesus is showing here in his kingship is that he had come into this world to rescue us from our sin. In fact, the entire gospel, the entire life of Christ, his life and his death, is about that rescue mission, that he would become a substitute for us. Because remember, we deserve God's wrath, judgment, and eternal punishment. But he became a substitute for us, dying in our place, taking on that very wrath, judgment, and punishment that we deserve. And the beautiful part of the, about the gospel, and if you're here today outside of Christ, I hope you hear these next words very clearly. But the Bible tells us that for those, 
that will repent of their sin and put their faith in Christ and his atoning work on the cross, the Bible says that they will be saved. Their greatest problem, their sin problem, will be dealt with in an instant because of the faith in what Christ has done for them. So who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? If you're here outside of Christ, I pray that perhaps for the first time, the blinders have been dropped and you're able to see who Jesus truly is and what he's done for you. If you are a believer, I pray that this, these next few days will be very special as you have the opportunity to meditate, to contemplate, to ponder what Christ has done for you on the cross. And I would encourage you to do that. And you can start by coming right back here at five o'clock this afternoon and be a part of a, an evening of praise and worship that will help you get your heart focused on what Passion Week is all about. But as I wrap up teaching time this morning, I want to read one more passage to you. It's from Luke's account as Jesus entered into Jerusalem. And as he's come into the city uh, or very close to it, he runs into some Pharisees. And Luke 19, verse 39, and some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Well, I pray this morning that any stones around here will remain quiet as God's people celebrate Palm Sunday by worshiping the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen? Amen.